Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from the gospel according to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Lord, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today, we start uh, a new series uh, coming out of our Lent series. We now begin a series that we are calling A Public Faith, uh, which will actually take us through most of the summer. Uh, it's a culmination of the season that we've been in over the last several months uh, that we've called A Public Faith. Uh, we have focused over the course of these couple of months uh, on what it means for Christians to be public with their faith in such a way uh, that they are able to welcome others into the hope of the Christian faith as a result of being those who live in a particular kind of way. And over the course of that season, we've intentionally not focused uh, on the claims of the Christian faith, uh, but rather we spent time considering the, the posture or the attitude that those uh, who hold to the Christian faith ought to have. We've considered uh, what it meant to be a public people uh, as those shaped by faith in Jesus, what our life ought to look like. Uh, we considered what it means to be a, a people who, in the midst of suffering, uh, trust the work of God uh, and trust that that suffering, even though we, we might not have all the answers uh, for why suffering comes, uh, why God is still nonetheless uh, someone that we can hope in and trust in and rest in. And all of this culminated, of course, last week uh, during Easter when we saw the reason why Christians have the hope that they have, uh, that the Christian faith is rooted in the reality that Christ uh, and in his power has conquered sin and death, rules victoriously over the grave, 
And now, in this final season, uh, this final series, we're going to uh, take a look at some of the most central claims of the Christian faith. Now, I I know that uh, some might assume that that might actually be a really good place to start in this overall public faith season that we uh, have been in. Why not start with the Christian faith, or the the Christian claims, uh, and then consider how those claims play out in the way that we live, how they shape our lives. But we actually structured the series of serieses in a particular way on purpose, because while we believe that uh, the claims of the Christian faith are are the starting point of what it means to believe uh, in the Christian faith, uh, for the Christian, when living uh, living, uh, faith in a particular kind of way, particularly in a public way, Christians uh, almost always uh, shouldn't lead off with the doctrinal claims in which we hold. And what I mean by that is that Christians uh, who often maybe first seek to justify or argue their particular beliefs, um, at least I have experienced, too often tend to not learn how to hold those beliefs in humble, gentle, loving, and yet also steadfast and firm kinds of ways. That too often we can uh, fall into proclaiming the the truths of the Christian faith um, with truth, but maybe not love, or other times maybe with love, but without truth. And so that very real tension of wanting to be able to say things that we believe, but to do so in a way that is humble, gentle, but also steadfast and firm is no small thing. And so we've spent the last several months just considering the posture of the Christian as we engage some of the things that we will now take a look at over the next several months. Um, Because there is a very real tension when Christians hold the beliefs, but then don't also at the same time learn how to honor God in the way they share and articulate those beliefs. And so if you're a Christian, I hope that the last several months uh, have challenged you that while Christians are those who do hold to particular beliefs, Christians should also be people who share and live those beliefs in ways that honor God and prayerfully, lovingly draw others to experience the hope that the Christian possesses. All that said, if you're here and you are not a Christian, or maybe you're not entirely sure what you believe about the Christian faith, first, let me say, I'm just so grateful that you're here. But over the course of this series, I hope that we can all take the claims of the Christian faith that we're going to consider, uh, the dialogue that we'll inevitably have through various channels, uh, to take them seriously, but to consider how to also hold those claims with love and in a way that honors God. And so to do that, with all that preface, we're going to spend the coming months studying the gospel accounts written by John. Now, why John? Well, in the closing chapters of the book of John, John makes a statement about why he wrote his gospel. And in chapter 20, uh, he says this, uh, starting in verse 30. Let me just read it for you. So this is at the end. After everything that John has described about the life and ministry of Jesus, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may, have, you may have life in his name. In other words, John wrote his account, an account that is unique compared to the others, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that you may have life in his name. And this is prayerfully what we are seeking in these coming days. 
for us to be able to, uh, maybe for the first time or maybe in deeper ways, know Jesus and the life that he provides to those who trust in him. So with that said, let's dive in. Uh, Particularly, I want to dive into what might be the most profound five paragraphs in all of human literature. I know that that sounds like hyperbolic preacher talk, but I'm not kidding. I'm being serious. This might be the most profound five passage or five paragraphs in all of human history. To see why, let's consider. First, the uniqueness of John's gospel. Second, the uniqueness of Jesus. And then finally, the uniqueness of his message. Okay, so first, the uniqueness of John's gospel. So to begin, let's get a little bit of a context, a little bit of context for the book of John itself, um, and why its uniqueness is actually quite consequential for us. So you you may know this, but there are four different gospel accounts: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell the story of Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection. But each of them have differing perspectives and emphases for the sake of differing primary audiences that they are all considering. So Matthew emphasizes Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Uh, Mark emphasizes Jesus as the one who ushers in the kingdom of God. Uh, Luke emphasizes Jesus as the one who welcomes and pursues the outsider, and in particular uh, focuses quite a bit on Jesus' elevation of, of women in that day. Now, these three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're known as the Synoptic Gospels because they all follow a similar pattern in telling the story of Jesus. But then we have John. John is emphasizing Jesus as the eternal Son of God, and he does not waste any time getting into what exactly that means. So what we just heard read is John 1. And if you'll notice, John doesn't have a a nativity scene or a, a backstory on Mary and Joseph. He jumps right into who Jesus is. Because John's primary audience was both the Jewish people and Gentiles who were living out uh, kind of around uh, in various places in the Greco-Roman world. And between the time when the other gospel writers wrote their accounts and when John now writes his gospel account, uh, various heresies had begun to creep into uh, some of these Jewish communities, I'm sorry, Christian communities that had developed. Uh, And the Jewish people and various Gentiles uh, throughout the region had different reasons for why they were beginning to reject the core Christian beliefs uh, that, one of the Christian beliefs, that Jesus is the Son of God. And they did so for different reasons. Now, for the Jewish people, uh, like Christians, uh, very much hold to there being one true God. I mean, famously in the Shema, which is a prayer from Deuteronomy 6, a prayer that was recited and repeated and is still recited and repeated even today, that passage in Deuteronomy 6 declares, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It's this emphasis on there being one true God. So the idea of someone who was a man in human flesh was to then be worshipped as divine was, as you could imagine, of great offense to the Jewish people. Of course it would be. So Jesus, as the Son of God, in the way that Christians meant it, could not possibly be true from that perspective. But then for many Gentiles, who were um, those who were non-Jewish in the Greco-Roman world, uh, a divine being as a man was actually of no real consequence to many of them. Right, the Romans and the Greeks had a, had a pantheon of gods uh, who would become human flesh. Even the Caesar uh, was viewed as divine in some ways. 
And so the problem for the Gentiles would have been rejecting all other gods and claiming that there is just this one true God. And many could not imagine the Jewish assertion that there was one true God. And so for different reasons, many of these Gentiles, they also came to the same conclusion about Jesus, that Jesus could not be what Christians claimed him to be. And so with that whole context in mind, John jumps right into his account to say that the Lord is one, that there's one true God, and that this one God is Jesus Christ in the flesh. It was very confronting to everybody who would have heard this from him, which now leads us to not only see why John's account is unique in comparison to some of the other accounts, but he also particularly emphasizes the uniqueness of Jesus, which is probably even more important for us to consider. So let's consider that for a minute. Uh, I said a minute ago that these five paragraphs, uh, which are often called the prologue of John's gospel, might be the most profound uh, passages in all of human literature. And I say that because what it claims about Jesus and the way in which it makes its claim is so unique not only literarily, but also about Jesus himself. I look at the first few verses um, that we see. So starting in verse one, let me start there. It says, in the beginning, let me pause there for a second. John is already intentionally taking us all the way back to Genesis one. So Genesis one, the beginning of the Bible, the very first verses of the Bible describe the beginning of time. And they start with those same words, in the beginning. The reason why that's significant is what we're seeing here uh, from John is that the story of Jesus does not start 2,000 years ago, but rather the story of Jesus actually needs to start at the very beginning of time. Then he goes on to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Let me stop there. Um, I hadn't noticed this before until I was uh, just studying this passage, but Frederick uh, uh, Bruner, who's a New Testament scholar who you will be hearing from more over the course of this series, he points out how incredibly bold this statement is from John, and he puts it this way. Um, Bruner says, whereas the first book of the Hebrew Scripture, that's Genesis, began early enough with a divine doing, the fourth gospel dares to begin with a divine being. John presumes to go behind and beyond creation to what and to who preceded it. In other words, John does not start with what God does like Genesis 1 does. Instead, what he describes with limited categories, he describes what was before even God doing anything, which was, at least from our perspective, the creation of the, of the universe and what is that limited category that John uses? Well, he uses the category known as the Word. Now, we've, we've talked about this before, but the Word, in our translation, uh, is logos in Greek. And the logos was a philosophical idea in the Greco-Roman world. The Word was the logic of the universe. This is, of course, where we get the word logic. Uh, in Greek philosophy, whatever cosmic order or wisdom or knowledge or meaning or purpose that existed, all of it came from whatever the logos was. 
Now, of course, uh, like all metaphysics, the complexity of such an idea was beyond tangibility for many. And so as a result, this was something that philosophers and theologians wrestled with for centuries. But wrestling with this logos is actually something that we all wrestle with, even if we don't put it into these same kinds of categories. Wrestling with the Logos and this notion of like a logic in the universe is not just for philosophers and theologians, but rather anyone, including us, seeking to make sense of anything at some point runs into the notion of the Logos. And the further we push our ideas and assumptions about what is true, the deeper we go eventually we're going to run into the notion of the Logos, the logic of the universe, the logic that sits behind all the claims of truth and knowledge. I mean, even scientific pursuits, right, that are rooted in in laws of nature, laws that are testable and usable when pressed to determine their logic and origin, they're all going to end up ultimately terminating on this Logos, whatever this Logos is. Meaning we are pushed, when we are pushed to greater and greater extents of understanding, we're going to have to constantly find what's behind what we discover. There's always something new behind what it is that we are discovering, including within the laws of nature. Right? In, the, in the smallest ways, right? we, can, we can try and push and we can see uh, what's behind every atom. You know, in the largest ways, we can push and try to see and experience what's out there in the vastness of the universe and the many galaxies that exist. And all of these are our good pursuits. But in the end, there's a logic that sits behind all of it that makes sense of anything that we try to pursue. And every religion and every philosophy has a different understanding of what that logic is. But for the Christian, what is that logic? Well, that logic is a person. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us that through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And who is this he throughout this passage? Well, of course, that he is Jesus. We could read uh, John 1.1 in this way, that in the beginning was Jesus And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Jesus, all things were made. Without Jesus, nothing has been made. In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus is the Logos. He is the logic of the universe. He is the the telos, the, the ultimate aim of the cosmic order, where all wisdom, knowledge, meaning, and purpose are rooted. I mean, another way to put it is that the the logic, which is translated word in our passage in John, it can also be translated as mind or thoughts. Now, it's the idea that in the beginning was the mind. It was the mind of God, and the mind was God. Again, back to to Bruner, this scholar. He was actually reflecting on something that he heard uh, a Sunday school teacher say once. Uh, Sunday school teacher's trying to, with a bunch of uh, kids, trying to make sense of this very abstract idea. And he describes the articulation from the Sunday school teacher, which I think is so perfect. The Sunday school teacher said this. said, I think the way a human being's audible words relate to his or her inaudible thoughts is the way that the divine human Jesus relates to the invisible God. 
So with that in mind, Bruner then goes on to say, we long to know what important, what people, uh, I'm sorry, we long to know what people important to us are thinking. We get this deeply desired knowledge when they talk to us. The great God talks to the human race most specifically and spatially in Jesus. In Jesus, his most personal word, God has spoken to us in the most human way possible. Another way to put this is that Jesus is to God what our words are to our thoughts. Our thoughts are, they're part of who we are, and they become embodied and made tangible to others. They become comprehensible to others when we speak those thoughts. And God speaks, and Jesus is the word of that speech. And this is why Christians can claim that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. This is why in John 10, Jesus can rightly claim that he and the Father are, are one. Or in John 14, when he says that if anyone has seen him, they have seen the Father. And so with that in mind, to make it explicit, look at now what John goes on to claim in verse 14. John then goes on to say that the word, this logic of the universe, the mind and thoughts of God become flesh. This word, this logic of the universe, this mind of God becoming human flesh. But this word didn't just become flesh, but the passage goes on to say that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, you may know this, but the word, you're getting a lot of Greek here, but the, the word here in, uh, that was in Greek that we uh, translate as made his dwelling is actually a, a verb form of the word uh, tent or tabernacle. It's another way you could uh, translate that as essentially saying that the word tabernacled amongst us. But why does that matter? Well, in the Old Testament, as you may know, the presence of God is with the people in the tabernacle, right? This was a mobile tent as they wandered the wilderness. And so what John is calling to mind for us here is that in the same way God's presence came to us or came to God's people through the tent, God's presence has now come to us again, but this time not in a tent, but in Jesus, that Jesus is the presence of God with his people. And this is the uniqueness of Jesus. Jesus is the presence of God. Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. And all this culminates in John's final claim, a claim that speaks not only about the uniqueness of Jesus, but also the uniqueness of his message. Let's look at that finally. Look at verse 16. So out of, the, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. What makes the claims of Christianity and the message of Jesus so unique is not what I think most people think about when they think about his message. Meaning, kind of in the, the zeitgeist and in the assumptions of many, Jesus' message often gets characterized as being one of, of love or grace or truth or compassion or sacrifice, all of which is true. But none of that is actually particularly unique. That message is not unique. 
I mean, every major world religion, especially the three main monotheistic religions, they uh, all, it's you know, not only them, but also other religions, philosophy, they all have teachings on love and grace and truth and compassion and sacrifice. I mean, this is often why Jesus gets uh, lumped in together with other religious leaders and founders. But an honest understanding of who Jesus claimed to be and who Scripture, the Bible, claims Jesus to be removes Jesus from all categorization of any other religious leader. Right? Jesus was not just some pious, moral, or wise teacher with a particular message of love, grace, and truth. You can go anywhere for that kind of message. There are countless versions of Jesus that exist across history. Rather, the uniqueness of Jesus is that he is the Logos, the mind of God, who tabernacled among us, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father and has made him known. The message of Jesus is that the eternal Son of God, God Emmanuel, God with us, has come to make the Father known. This is the uniqueness of the one that we celebrate. And because he is the Logos, because he is the logic of the universe, grace and truth come through him. I mean, consider the significance of this. Jesus does not just tell us about what was revealed to him about grace and truth. Rather, grace, grace and truth, or in the words of verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone. Whatever is true is only true because that truth comes through Jesus. This is why Jesus, again in John 14, why he does not point to truth as though truth is out there somewhere, but in John 14, he says, I am the truth. This is significant about who Jesus is. Jesus claims to be truth itself. He says that I am with the Father, that if you see, I am one with the Father. If you see me, you have seen the Father. And then he comes in the flesh, because if he did not come in the flesh, we would have absolutely no way of knowing him or knowing the Father. You know, C.S. Lewis has this wonderful articulation in, in Surprised by Joy, when he's, he's considering this notion of how we go about knowing God, and he's considering, and surprised by joy, he's considering the relationship between Hamlet and Shakespeare, and whether or not they could actually ever know each other. And Lewis, thinking about that, said this about their relationship. He said, if Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. Hamlet could initiate nothing. And what he's unpacking there is that unless Shakespeare willingly, graciously, and maybe even lovingly writes himself into Hamlet's story, Hamlet would be forever ignorant of his creator, Shakespeare. But even more, even if Shakespeare did write himself into the story of Hamlet, he would need to do so in such a way that Hamlet, as a, as a creature of Shakespeare's making, he'd have to do it in a way that Hamlet could comprehend. And similarly, in Jesus, God wrote himself into our story, but did it in a way that we could comprehend. And this, friends, again, is the uniqueness of not only Jesus, but his message that God has come in a comprehensible way so that we might know him. A couple of uh, weeks ago, uh, Abe, one of our pastors here, and I, and a couple of others, we were having a, a conversation 
with a person uh, who is skeptical of Christianity and the claims of Jesus being divine. And in that conversation, um, this gentleman made a comment about why he doesn't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And what he said, I actually wholeheartedly agreed with, actually. You know, he said that the God of the Bible and, and Jesus as God is too small. You know, if God existed, God would be way bigger than what is described in the Bible. And I actually agree. I wholeheartedly agree with that assertion and that concern. Because what we read in the Bible, particularly about Jesus, is infinitely smaller than the full grandeur of who God truly is. Right? If God is God, then by necessity, the gap between the grandeur of God and the, the finitude of humanity would be akin to our intelligence to that of a worm. It's not even comparable if he is God. Or maybe to, to put it another way, the, the gap between a, a painter and the character of his painting. It's an impossible gap. And if we are to know God and comprehend him at all, he must make himself small, intelligible, comprehensible to us, to write himself, paint himself into our story. And of course, that doesn't mean that he's limited by the presentation of himself, for he is far greater than we could imagine. But it does mean that in love, he desires for us to know him. And Jesus Christ, the Word, the Logos, bridges that gap, that impossible gap, and he makes himself small, makes himself intelligible. Why? So that you and I might know God. That then leaves us, though, and I'll close with this. It, close, it leaves us with a, a little bit of a dilemma, a question that we need to consider. And that question is just simply, who is Jesus to you? I mean, who is Jesus? Is Jesus to us what John 1 describes? And as a result, you know, maybe we live or believe in certain kinds of ways because of what John describes. Or do we maybe have other perspectives of who Jesus is? And are those other perspectives honest about what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is? You know, again, referencing C.S. Lewis, he popularized uh, an argument for faith in Jesus. Basically, when we are considering the claims about Jesus— and even more, what Jesus claimed about himself, which we will look at over the course of this series, we basically have one of three options when it comes to Jesus. Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, meaning Jesus either knew he was not God and yet claimed to be, and so he's a liar, or he believed himself to be God and wasn't, and so he was a lunatic, or... He really is everything John 1 claims him to be, everything that he claimed to be about himself, and as a result, is Lord. The comprehensible Word of God, the mind of God who spoke to us. And my friends, the incomprehensible God, we believe, Christians believe, the incomprehensible God made himself comprehensible. The eternal God stepped into time. The matchlessly powerful God made himself weak. The glorious one made himself small. The mind of God made intelligible. Also that in Jesus, we might know him. And as we celebrated last week, Jesus being the one who came to live, 
to die and to resurrect again for us. This is, of course, the central claim of Christianity, but it also reveals to us the great love of God and the extent to which he's willing to go in order for us to know him. And so my question, again, to all of us would be, who is Jesus to you? My prayer would be that not only today, but over these coming months, we would see Jesus with fresh eyes and maybe see him as this logos, this word, for the first time. Not so that we can argue for a particular belief system about who God is, but that we might actually know him. And I trust by his spirit, as we seek to know him, he meets us, reveals himself more and more to us that we might be in deeper, deeper relationship with him. I pray that becomes a reality for all of us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are beyond comprehension, uh, and yet in Jesus you have made yourself comprehensible. We thank you that you spoke to us in a way that we needed, in a way that we could understand, and that your words, your mind, is Jesus himself. Lord, I pray that we would take very seriously what that means, and that in the end, Lord, we would not just think about these things as philosophical ideas, but that we would see that the end of all of this is for us to be in relationship with you, for us to know you. Lord, I pray that you would meet us as we trust that you do by your spirit and give us eyes to see the glories of who Jesus truly is. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.